want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. But as soon as I showed up, like we had the nine line and within 90 seconds, we were tar- eyes on and tally target. And then as soon as we came off target, that one's done. He just goes, shift northwest corner of the clearing, stair 151. You've heard this in cast before. It's just like, you don't need to write down anything on the nine line. It's like, I'll feed you the data. It's like, just fly information and be ready. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then I had a guy at B course tell me, he's just like, actually flash to be perfectly honest with you. The only reason you are here is because I cannot physically reach over and hit your pickle butt. I was pretty good. Uh, so it didn't go poorly for me as far as learning how to be a Viper pilot all the way up until I got to my time at Osan. And then when I got into the plug, I got absolutely exposed. So that was uh, how I ended up piloting, thinking that, man, it's going to be a miracle if I graduate uh, right. this course and actually get to become a pilot. So uh, a little bit of a different path. I always remember that. I always uh, kind of look at this career that I've had and say that it almost never happened. Welcome back and thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is Flash McVeigh. If you've listened to the bro chats, you've heard Flash on there. Flash has flown the A-10, the F-16, and the F-35. He went to weapon school in the F-16 and went back as weapon school instructor and then transitioned over to the F-35. Quite a smart guy. This is more of his story and the story of how he almost did not become a pilot. So quite interesting to hear Flash's background and some of the things he has done. I think you'll enjoy today's episode. Before we get rolling into that, a couple of admin notes. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters for making the podcast happen. Flash was kind enough to hang around and share a There I Was story, which is available over on Patreon and now is also available to Apple Podcast subscribers and Spotify podcast subscribers. So if you want a little something extra, a story you might only hear in the squadron bar, you can check out Flash's There I Was story, as well as the many other There I Was stories available on those platforms. If Patreon and Apple and Spotify aren't your things, no big deal. You still can support the podcast by taking the six to nine seconds and just going over and hitting follow, leaving a five-star review, and leaving a comment for the ratings review. That helps the podcast get shown to more people. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribing, commenting, liking, again, that helps the podcast grow and helps out in more ways than you can imagine. So thank you to those who've just taken the time, if you're liking this content, to go over there and show it. With that being said, let's get into the podcast with Flash. Dude, Flash, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. It's uh, good to have you on here. Oh, Rain. No, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Dude, well, if you have been listening at all to the bro chats, you guys might or might not have heard Flash make two appearances, which I think is the record. Albeit, you know, we only have like 11 of them in the queue. But Flash is a really smart guy. He has an interesting career. 
and we were going to talk a lot about flying jets and everything in between. But Flash, I want to kick off because lately in the news, there's some stuff going on with a country over in or near like Eastern Europe that stirred up a few things. And lately, or I think it was last week, a drone getting hit by a flanker. What are your thoughts? Like, do you think that was intentional? I mean, we can talk strategic, we can talk tactical. Again, these are just some random opinions. But when you saw that footage, what did you think? For, uh, when I saw the footage, wild, absolutely yeah. wild. Um, the MG9's got great, got obviously got great quality, and watched the entire thing. Uh, the The fuel dump tactic uh, is not something that I have considered. <laughs> uh, before on an intercept, uh, but it could be it could be a new thing. But initially, what I kind of thought about it is, yeah, I think that was really dumb on the on on the side of the pilots, the Russian flanker pilots, uh, in my opinion. The I think the the take that I have the take that I have on the entire thing is looking back across. I like to look at just military history and how near conflicts. And proxy conflicts have potentially either started or been avoided, and I, I think as a fighter pilot in 2023, the kind of like we talked about on the very first bro chat that I was on is like, what does the future war look like, and whether it's going to be major combat operations or whether it's going to be proxy wars or anything of that nature, and force on force or anything like that. Um, I think these are the types of things that every fighter pilot has to be aware of that their own actions uh, are going to have strategic consequences. Not, they're going to hop over operational consequences and go right to strategic consequences. And we as American fighter pilots uh, are hopefully aware of it. Hopefully the other side uh, that we are in conflict with is also aware of it. And just my thought on the whole thing was how it was conducted was I doubt that that was directed by any sort of upper echelon authority. Uh, if it was, then sounds great. Uh, that I would prefer they did not do that. Right. Um, based on some of the things, and we've done, we've seen this before. Like uh, the one of the things that, and me and my brother were talking about it. My brother is uh, he's a professor at Naval War College. We talk about these kind of things. But another thing was like in the Cuban Missile Crisis, is the Cuban government directed the shoot down of the U two uh, about twelve days into the crisis. And then we put Minutemen uh, ICBMs on alert pointed at Russia. And so when you're looking at the people that are just a part of these conflicts, in this case, two fighter pilots, uh, their action unintentional because I don't think he would like to hit another aircraft. Uh, right. So I hope that the midair was actually unintentional. These things can have just massive strategic implications. And that's something you have to be aware of. And I thought overall... Um, the tactic that they elected to choose was rough, was obviously pretty irresponsible. Uh, and then you could just have some massive uh, world ramification or ramifications on the world uh, that we didn't anticipate nor want. Because at the moment, we are still kind of just supplying and working with Ukraine in their, in their war against Russia. But if that were to happen against a manned uh, aircraft, that would go sideways in a, in a hurry. So I just hope that that kind of stuff just gets knocked off pretty quick. It is a good point because, you know, it could be a 26 year old. I don't know what the, you know, the, the structure of the Russian air force is right. But let's take your one each fighter squadron in the United States or Europe or, you know, Western world very well. The average age inside that formation 
is somewhere around 26, 27, 28 years old. And the ramifications for a wild action can send a world into World War III. So again, you hope that it was just a reckless action. And looking at it, like to me, that's what I would think, because what pilot wants to hit another aircraft? And if you're going to take down a drone, I mean, where where they're oper- where that happened in the world, I think you probably very easily could have hung back at a few miles and slung a missile at it, and you've taken it out, and it had been very difficult for anyone to prove that the drone just didn't go lost link and ditch into the sea, you know? So taking all those risks um, to actually take down a drone in such an inefficient manner is wild. And that's, I, I agree the the, the whole thing is absolutely a insane case study in just how things can go. And when you don't really have a plan with the two sides. And so when we don't really have a plan on how we want to, uh, handle escalation, uh, in the Ukraine, Russia conflict, is if we don't necessarily have a plan for that, uh, then these are the types of things that that can go sideways quick. Because if we're not able to just stop, it's like, nope, you know what? That's not according to plan. We can have this in a diplomat, or we can handle this in a diplomatic way. Then we can avoid these major conflicts. It was kind of like on the last, the second bro chat that I was on, when we talked about shooting down balloons. Is I was concerned about if we shot down a balloon or any sort of suborbital ISR, that that would open up our suborbital ISR to certain things that other countries could be like, okay, well, now if there's somebody that is spying on us, we can shoot it down. Right. Are we allowed to do that now? Um, obviously, this situation is massively different uh, between the two sides of um, on like an actual aircraft versus a balloon, even though uh, we could ar- make arguments all day long. But I mean, the game is changing. Uh, and we just want to be on the right side and be able to say and have a leg to stand on uh, to say that what we're doing is correct and that they were the irresponsible ones, uh, which I think it is in this case on just a tactic that was just two fighter pilots trying to do something. Uh, they were probably told to up echelon, go intercept this thing. Don't dump fuel on it and run into it. <laughs> uh, probably didn't need to be said, uh, but maybe that's something that uh, was said in their pilot meeting on a Friday or something that. <laughs> Or something like that. We're going to need to debrief this one, fellas. Yeah, the fuel fuel dump on it. Now that everyone in the world has watched the the fuel dumping uh, flanker, you can obviously see, I think, how inefficient that was. And then if the camera hadn't even been staring at it, like, what are you trying to do? Like, even if you hit it with fuel, like, it's still going to see you. Just, yeah. yeah, It's just a a thing. I don't know. But. the interesting part of it too, I did see that they're going to be awarded some kind of Russian medal for for something. But I think in the face of saving things, and then Putin becoming an international war criminal, all in the same. It's been a busy weekend, you know. Busy, so busy weekend. Things things are changing fast, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Flash, I appreciate your take on that. Again, it's uh, interesting. And again, uh, with that too, it's like. No one really knows. Only those two dudes sitting inside the cockpit, and then depending on what transpired between them and their upper echelon. But looking at it, it just seems like this is a super inefficient way if you wanted to take down a drone to collide with it and then allow the world to watch you do it via high definition footage, you know? So, yeah, exactly. Hindsight. Well, dude, I want to jump back into really what got you involved in flying, what got your path into the Air Force? Where did it all start for you? 
Oh man. Um, well, so I'm from a military family. Uh, my uncle, my dad, my dad, going back to my grandpa, my grandpa was also in the, uh, army guard. Uh, but my uncle, my dad, and my brother all graduated from the air force academy, 75, 77 in 2003. Uh, so I was familiar with the air force academy, uh, visited there a ton of times, a massive Air Force Academy football fla- football fan. And that was actually really? the big reason I wanted to go was I wanted to play football there. Uh, I w- I'm not very good. I was not very good at football. And I'm still not uh, even more washed up now. Uh, but I really wanted to go there to play football. Uh, I wasn't recruited. So I was, uh, I sent some film in and was a walk on, uh, but ended up making the team and uh, got to play for a little while. And we'll circle back. Uh, I'll Tarantino the story here in a minute. But as far as I joke around to a lot of people as I joined the Air Force to play football. Um, and then that didn't really work out. Uh, the reason it didn't work out was because I wasn't a very disciplined kid. Uh, so when I got to the academy, away from my parents for the first time, and no one was forcing you to do your homework. And as it turns out, the Air Force Academy will just let you fail. Uh, and they'll kick you out. Uh, so that almost happened. Uh, but as far as like getting in involved in flying, um, I didn't necessarily go to the academy to become a pilot. Uh, it was something that if it, if it came my way, that that would be what I would do. Uh, but so showing up to the academy in 2005, uh, it wasn't necessarily on my, on my radar, uh, to, to go fly airplanes, uh, for the air force, even though that's what my family had done. Uh, but then as far as, uh, just kind of going through it, uh, once I was done playing football, uh, which wasn't very long into my time, about a year and a half. Uh, I tried to transfer, tried to leave, tried to quit the Air Force Academy on uh, on two occasions. Uh, one step, again, transfer to go play football, and then the other one was just because I didn't really like it. Uh, so I didn't know if I was going to show up junior year, uh, first day of class for commitment. Um, but then realized that like this this is an opportunity. This is a good path. Uh, I saw the life that my my dad provided for his family. It's a it's an honorable profession uh, and things like that. And then I actually did start to enjoy the Air Force Academy and the Air Force way of life, if you will. And then I did get interested in flying. Um, but uh, so I went to the cl- I went to class, decided to finish out the last two years, become an officer, all the stuff. Uh, we were going to go. Uh, then obviously jobs come out about end of junior year. Uh, I was not ranked very highly in my Air Force Academy class. Uh, But as far as, uh, because of uh, that whole undisciplined thing, my GPA was very low to start uh, my time. So, and it was hard to recover from that. So my class ranking was not very high. uh, So I was not gonna get my first choice of jobs. Uh, So I was actually was given uh, logistics. So I was gonna be a logistics officer. uh, So my junior year at the Academy. Put myself down on the wait list for a rated position. And then about, I would say 150 days from graduation because 100 night you actually find out where you're going and things of that nature. I got an opportunity to be a, a CISO, combat systems, uh, combat systems officer. So backseat of a Strike Eagle, back end of a C-130, uh, back end of, a C-1- of an AC-130, navigator on any of the bigger airplanes. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, if you still want to be a pilot, you either you have to take that spot on the wait list or else you're off the rated wait list uh, for good. So it was it was a take or no, uh, and then you'll uh. be a logistics officer. So I took it, um, of course. So on Hunter's Night, uh, I was still a, a navigator, CISO, uh, and then 10 days before graduation, I finished my finals, went home, uh, for just took some leave, because you can, uh, waiting to graduate. 
And I'm sitting in the parking lot of the uh, YMCA, which is where, where we worked out, uh, me and my family. And I got a phone call from my AMT, uh, Academy Military Trainer. Uh, so our Mass Sergeant, uh, Mass Sergeant Molina. Um, and uh, Jerry Molina, he was a uh, crew chief uh, on the Thunderbirds, actually, uh, before he was at Academy AMT. Uh, and he said, hey, we got some bad news about your graduation. Uh, you're in a little bit of trouble. We need you to get on the first flight back to Colorado. And I've been in trouble before at the Air Force Academy, so this is not an implausible situation. <laughs> so the uh, I was like, oh, no. Uh, what happened? What did I do? What did I do this time was actually the, uh, the question that came out. Uh, he's like, well, I'm going to put you on with, uh, major wood. Uh, so Paul Wood, uh, call sign morning, um, B1 weapons, B1 weapons officer. Great guy. Didn't appreciate him when I was there. Definitely appreciate him now. Uh, he just goes, yeah, man, we just got a little bit of a problem with graduation. We got to change your assignment. You're not going to be a CISO anymore. You're going to be a pilot. Uh, so about 10 days before graduation, I got my pilot slot, uh, to Del Rio, Texas, graduated, uh, went on 60 days of leave, reported to Del Rio and, uh, kind of showed up, was told when I first went to the student squadron, Hey, don't take any leave because you start pilot training in like three weeks. And I was like, I don't start pilot training until next March. And it's currently August something. They go, nah, you got moved up to September. So I was one of the only academy folks in my class uh, with two other academy, or with, uh, just me and two other academy uh, dudes from my class with about 32 other uh, humans uh, going through pilot training. Uh, and that's kind of how I started pilot training. So that was the path, like going to pilot training was, uh, didn't really go to the academy to be a pilot. Got my uh, pilot slot 10 days before graduation. Whirlwind, get down to Laughlin uh, and then get started pretty much right away. Uh, and then I just remember on the first day of pilot training, uh, which is that when I had to go back to IFS, which is a, a story in itself, uh, I'll tell in a second if you, if you want to hear it. But, uh, I was like, I'll be the guy that flies RC-135s to Offit and just go back home to Nebraska if I can get through this course. I was like, I need all of your guys' help. Uh, so if I can get through it, I'll drop, I'll take the RC-135. Um, because when I went to IFS at Pueblo, I did not do well. Uh, so I really? was not... And still, I'm not the most gifted of pilots. Um, <laughs> but flying, a, I'd never flown an airplane before. Like I'd never been in a military aircraft, and let alone this DA-20. Uh, and I think we talked about it on a bro chat, but I couldn't slip to land. So like this one single maneuver, couldn't slip. Busted my checkride for it. Busted my second checkride for it uh, with the Air Force. And a captain, uh, green bag, Air Force guy at at the uh, at DOS told me, hey man, you know what this means, that... Uh, we're very sorry, but uh, you're not going to graduate this course. Uh, and then he's like, "I'm going to go tell the squadron commander." And literally, they have a 20 minute conversation. I'm sitting in the sitting in the in the chair, and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Tillman he walks out. Uh, squadron commander just goes, "Hey, you know what? We're going to go ahead and wave that maneuver." And uh, I asked, I talked to your instructors, and I looked at your grade book, and everything's been doing, going okay, just average. Um, and we think that you should still get the opportunity to be a pilot, uh, not, and not end your career, not end your pilot career based off one maneuver that you don't normally do in military aircraft. Um, so that was, uh, how I ended up at pilot training thinking that, man, it's going to be a miracle if I graduate, uh, right. this course and actually get to become a pilot. So, uh, a little bit of a different path. I always remember that. I always, uh, kind of 
look at this career that I've had and say that it almost never happened. What would have happened? What like all the what if games? Uh, but just super thankful uh, for all the opportunities that I was given, and people kind of still believe in me after I gave them every opportunity not to. Uh, in all reality, here's a here's a spoiler alert too for those who haven't followed you on the bro chat or anything. But Flash has not only flown the A10, the Viper, but now flies the F35. Weapons officer, been a weapons school instructor, so he's quite talented. And dude, hearing that, um, there is something that. I think if you have the right attitude and like push through it, like sometimes there's, there's someone who's always kind of watching out and helping, helping you. And people also are probably not familiar with IFS. So that's initial flight screening. And that's a program that is predominantly run by civilian instructors. I think to this day, there are air force pilots associated with it, but they're teaching to fly a DA 20, a diamond 20 or DA 40. Now it's basically, it's a, it's a screening program. And I remember we were one of the first classes to go through DOS out in Pueblo. And I know kidding. I think we started with 69 and we washed out. It was like something like 23, 25% of the class. So significantly a very high attrition rate. Um, but hey, if you don't get past that, like you don't even get to pilot training. And in theory, nope. you save money flying cheaper planes than flying a T6. But man, talk about, you know, just one maneuver that was going to be the kill shot. And then having someone who had enough common sense to say, you know what, like he's probably going to be okay and figure this out. And if yeah, you're flying a RC-135, you're probably not slipping the plane. And by nope. the time you get to that point, you've had you've yeah you've had enough. You know, and if you are slipping that plane, it's probably not going to end well. But you could that's, just go. That's awesome. You could just you could just go around. Right here, here's an option. Here's We're steep. Option. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll go around and get another approach and landing. They need that for their counters anyway. So exactly, dude. That's it's it's cool to hear stories like that. I I'm trying to think when I got my pilot slot. There was only so I got out of ROTC, but out of the seven commissioning, only two of us had pilot slots. And then towards the end, I'm, I'm assuming it's happening like due to medical and other reasons where people are washing out. Uh, at least in my time period, that and this was '07, so a few years ahead of you where or a couple years ahead of you, then they got to fill in more people. But I'm thinking like I was maybe starting my FAPE round when you were commissioning. And is it true or not? Because I, I hear these rumors going back and forth and this might jump in today, but there are a lot of cadets at the academy that don't want to be pilots. And I feel like it was starting in and around that time period where people didn't want to go to pilot training, one, because the commit was too long or they wanted to go do space stuff or whatever. Is there any merit to that statement or do you know anything oh, about that? hundred um, percent. It's uh, there's a thousand factors. We won't get into even five of them, but the, <laughs> but the, but it's absolutely true. Um, and I think it, I think it's a little bit, uh, gener it's generational and not generational yeah. as in like the people don't want to be lethal fighter pilots and like all the, all the chest beating and stuff like that. I think it's the same reason that kids don't want to be, or that guys that go into the academy, I hate to call them kids. I was a kid. Um, younger it's, people than us, Rain. Right. But, uh, Getting old, gray hair. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> but uh, I think there's, I think the same things of why a cadet doesn't want to be a pilot is the same reason that a major wants to separate from the Air Force. And as far as I think that there's so many more options and so much more personal license and autonomy 
in the world that people are not just like, I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy and be a pilot and, and kind of go from there. It's just like, I can go to the Air Force Academy and I can carve out an incredible career for myself as an intel officer. I can carve out an incredible career with follow-on options as an acquisitions officer, a contracting, logistics, any career field. Any career field in the Air Force is going to propel you uh, towards options, both uh, having an honorable and very good Air Force career, and then additionally, a solid civilian career afterwards. There is off-ramps to the private sector and the public sector uh, in all career fields within the military. So I think people are recognizing that. Then there's the commitment. Um, I could be in the Air Force for five years as a logistics officer and minimum of 10 from when I, if I started pilot training, like if I graduated pilot training the day I graduated from the Air Force Academy, it's 10 years. Uh, I think that scares some uh, scares some folks as they want to start something more lucrative than the Air Force. You're not going to get rich being in the military, um, but they want to start something potentially more lucrative early on in their career. And I think all of those factors play into it. Um, and then also exposure to uh, to pilots uh, at the Air Force Academy. Pilot shortage uh, that we'll uh, maybe get into later on is this is it's. All, that entire story that I just told is why I'm so passionate about development at a younger age. Developing of a younger fighter pilot is because just like you said, the people that were sitting there just being like, hey, you know what? We're not going to let this one maneuver ruin this kid's flying career. We see potentially something in this guy. Uh, I want to go find I want to go find that kid that doesn't necessarily know he wants to be a pilot yet and uh show them that this is a path not that this is the way but it is a right. path uh that maybe they weren't thinking about that they would enjoy uh in their life it's something it's something big so by the way if lieutenant colonel robert tillany he's retired i can't find him i've been looking but if you're out there uh come find me you probably don't remember me at all this is probably just a random friday for you uh but uh my career is uh owed to that individual it's pretty cool. I was talking with my buddy Feed, who is a Blue Angel. I interviewed him a few weeks back. His episode hasn't aired yet. Similar story. So he was on the enlisted side in the Navy, floating around on boats and stuff. But he remembers exactly the guy who signed his papers um, to commission, you know, to send him the O route, which is it's just really cool to hear, like oh, yeah. someone who has such a pivotal impact and vector on your. I mean, it's life changing, right? You absolutely be completely. No telling what you probably, you know, on Wall Street or something like that, living in uh, the Bahamas. So, but yeah, it worked out great for you, Flash. Look at you now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it has worked out. Um, obviously, there's, say. I mean, we've had, I mean, we've, I've had some career stuff, uh, especially recently, but I mean, it's, it's one of those where it's all, it's just a, it's just a journey and it's yep. been a, it's been a good one. And I've, I have always said that I've, I've hoped that, I made it worth that dude's uh, ink to sign the grade sheet saying I passed. And I was like, and if, and if I was able to pay it forward and all these different things, just like you have, like, uh, and all those things, like you've had the exact same, uh, a few of the same similar experiences that I've had. Right. And like your impact on people in aviation is, is incredible. And so you just want to, you just want to make it worth the people's uh, time that gave you the opportunity. And that's the biggest, and that's the biggest thing. Yeah, hundred percent. I had I had some people who definitely looked out for me along the way and guided me because otherwise I was a kid who's like, yep, oh, yeah, bounce around like, oh, maybe you should go do that. Maybe you like, oh, okay, that seems kind of cool. But they put the bumpers up and they helped kind of pull me along, which I would not be here today without some several key mentors 
and uh, sidewalls, if you will, Absolutely. to keep me keep me moving down the path. So Absolutely. you graduate pilot training. That obviously goes fairly well because you you go into the mighty hog. Absolutely. Where uh, what was so? Did you let's see? You did one assignment in the hog, correct? I did. I did. Huh? Uh, yeah. So just one operational assignment after B course. So B course Davis Monthan. Uh, my one operational is at Moody. Did you do a full assignment at Moody? And did you? I sure did in not. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the. The less than minute uh, story on that one is like I show up to Moody on April Fool's Day, uh, 2012, uh, 74th okay. Fighter Squadron, and uh, thunder it to that. Uh, man, that that squadron was awesome. Like I'd say, I'd say it's like the the humans that were in that that if as far as developing as a young fighter pilot, that was where you wanted to be. Um, but uh, they had just gotten back from a deployment, and it was like the the young flight leads turn IPs that just come back from that deployment that became the old okay. heads, uh, like to go on this next one. Um, so we we're slated again. So I did the whole, uh, upgrade just one, uh, flight lead in about eight months after I got there just to deploy. So we deployed in March of 2013. Uh, so a little less than a year after I showed up and went down range, uh, I have some great stories, uh, as, as far, at least I think they're great, uh, or <laughs> stories, se- stories that are told poorly that had an impact on me. But, uh, <laughs> but as far as, but as far as going down range and, uh, and learning, uh, had a couple, I mean, the standard young, dumb, not very good A-10 pilot things and, uh, down range when Afghanistan was hard for different reasons. It's not like, uh, Vietnam combat. It's not any of the, like the major combat that we, that we've written books about uh but it was incredibly difficult for different reasons uh but as far as that one then about halfway through the time there when i was still a lieutenant i was told if you're 500 the jet's going away if you're 500 hours if you're experienced and have been on station for greater than a year you're going you're pcsing uh but you're pcsing but there are no a10 assignments anymore period dot uh, so that, that was when I actually got the word, um, the verbal that I got was I was going back to Laughlin to teach pilot training. Uh, but then we come home in October. I don't even reconstitute, uh, because, uh, about a month, maybe, or maybe two months before, um, two months before I got offered, uh, to go to the Viper for a Viper TX. Me and another guy that was deployed with us, Moose Dryer. Um, so he was, oh yeah. Oh yeah, all moose. All, all, all moose, <laughs> dude. What a what a guy. What a guy that guy. Great, uh, but phenomenal human being. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, so me and most of the guys, and then as I'm walking out the door to go get in an A10 and fly very slowly back across the pond back to Moody, um, Moose just goes, "Flash, it's official. We're going to the Viper." And I just I then thought about that for 11 hours while sitting in my A10 uh, about my A10 career being over. Uh, yeah. and how I felt about it. Um, even though I kind of picked it cause they did offer it to me. Uh, it was either that or go to pilot training. So it wasn't much of a choice. Uh, right. but as far as that's concerned, yeah, that was the one assignment. So about a year and eight months operational, um, for the A-10. So a little under three years with B course, uh, is how long I flew the hog. It's still, however, the most jet, the most hours I have in an aircraft, uh, based off the, uh, uh, time, yeah, okay. time around yeah. that time around the sun, uh, in Afghanistan. That's wild. It's funny too. Cause moose, I correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure moose is going to be a dentist 
That was like his plan, yes. and then turned yes, turn fighter pilot. Yeah, and so <laughs> he just dis- destroyed his collarbone in SOS, or else he was going to be a weapons officer in the Hawk. He was like, oh, was like going, yeah, I forgot like about going, that. He was going to like, uh, I think he was going to like eleven Bravo or something like that. But who knows? That's funny because I was, I you know, I did an MC twelve deployment. Yep. But part of my training, you know, normally I do it at Beale. I went TDY down to Yuma, Arizona, lovely Yuma in January. And like normally like the training was taking like two, three months for guys to get through. And we went through and they counted every sortie. It was, you know, four hour sorties. Every sortie was, it was two syllabus rides. But Moose Good. showed up down there because we were doing some uh, integration with the hogs and seals. And he was telling me that. And then like fast forward, you know, whatever it was, six months later, he's like, nah, I didn't have broke my collarbone or whatever. I was like, that's wild. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Man, small world. What, oh, yeah. um, so what was difficult about Afghanistan at that time period? I, I got a guess or two. What was, what was the challenges? The challenge was, uh, when we got there, you could not impact a building with a weapon, a okay, structure, challenging. a structure. So you could not, um, drop a bomb that would uh, have any frag or any collateral damage against a structure. Uh, so anything that you did had to be out in the open, except that the gun in the A-10 was classified as a zero CDE weapon, like direct fire weapon. Uh, so we didn't drop very many bombs uh, outside of um, task force. So okay. like uh, kind of going after high value targets and individuals. Uh, we didn't drop a whole lot of bombs on things like blowing up buildings or anything like that. We shot a lot of gun. Uh, so kind of doing, doing some of that stuff, but the ROE and just the overall ambiguity of the time. So around 2013 was when they started, uh, I think, uh, fob, right. Uh, like in the Kunar Valley, far East side of Afghanistan, that's when they started to sort of close down a lot of fobs. I think they closed down something like 40 to 50 fobs. Uh, while we were like the tiny ones, like we're talking like all the, yep. like they were retrograding back to the big ones, uh, like Shank, Salerno and Cobble, like going back home, uh, to kind of just have these large, uh, operating bases versus like the ton of little fobs that are out there. So they started retrograding, uh, and then starting to man these areas with more, uh, Afghan national security forces, Afghan national army and things of that nature. So there's a lot of troops in contact that I was called to that I would show up and there was no American anywhere in the vicinity and it was all telephone games. So it was radio in at like in Farsi in at like their net, their native language to interpreter at a talk down to a JTAG. Let's get a predator overhead. Let's do this. And then now I show up as an A-10 guy as a truce and contact and we're sitting there it's like truce and contact, very time sensitive. And now I got to wait. And what I'm being told on the radio is people are getting shot at and are active and are dying. And you're just like, okay, is that, I don't doubt that that is the case, but you have to survey the situation and you just have to kind of show, show lethality by restraint, if you will. And by just making sure that you do this right the first time, uh, first time, if you can. And then also just be like, you know what? No, I'm not going to release that weapon or I'm not going to just roll in and do a bunch of shows of forces and put myself into a dangerous situation. And I like, I, I'm glad to say the majority of time it worked out well for me. There were times that I, that I didn't handle those situations well, 
and uh, did some things that could have gone very poorly. Uh, so just just difficult things, but that was the entire squadron. Uh, so everybody was kind of doing the same thing. And uh, guys who had been there a lot uh, really, really developed me well on how to act in a situation with limited information uh, and ambiguity. So uh, that was what was the most difficult about the entire thing was showing up to a situation that is tailor-made, A-10, troops in contact, and just being like, okay, the best thing I can do is just sit and not shoot. Man. Yeah, because, you know, the adrenaline's pumping things through the floor. It is Young. always impressive to hear. Um, it's like, it, there seems like there's more, I mean, there are a lot of A-10 videos on YouTube with troops in contact, right? And, like, the world is melting but beneath them. And those flight leads are just always, like, cool, calm, and collected, just directing, you know, the fight and moving, trying to move the information back and back and forward so they can impact the fight, you know, as fast as they can. Not yeah. an easy thing to do. And as we talked about in the beginning, you know, the average age that of a you know formation, maybe you got the squadron commander out there and the youngest wingman, and you got an average age of like 30 in that formation. That if you're talking Afghanistan um, and you end up killing a bunch of civilians, which obviously is a very, very bad thing, but the strategic and uh, geopolitical impact of that is just huge. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the thing. That was, that was preached to me by our weapons officer and wing weapons officer. Um, Lorenzo Harris, uh, is just a huge mentor of mine. Um, still, uh, I think he's some days he's still in the air force. Some days he's not, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, great guy. Uh, but he, he was just sitting there and he was the guy who kind of taught me. He's just like, dude, you flash McVeigh have the opportunity to make, like have the distinct opportunity to potentially ruin this Afghanistan war. And it's just like, if you yeah. do the wrong thing, then this can have political ramifications and strategic ramifications. This is a strategic, like, war of an infinite game, if you will, if anybody's ever heard of that. Um, and we have the opportunity to lose the game. And then he'd always, he, like, I remember a lot of guys kind of talking to us as being like, I don't think any of us are going to win the war, this, this deployment. So don't go into a situation thinking that you're going to do so. Yeah, that's a great perspective to have because you will only lose it, and you're and you're not going to make that big of a change, unfortunately. But unfortunately. you can absolutely lose it with one trigger pull or one pickle button press yeah. in the wrong spot when the thing. And yeah, dude, like obviously the the stories are out there. I think of the, I think it was the squadron commander and the, like the weapons officer or DO or both of them were patches. They were guard unit. Remember they strafed the Canadians mm-hmm. on the bridge out, yep. you know, and like that was a prime example of. Um, dudes who just, I think, wanted to get in the fight um, and wanted to do something that had been a slow deployment, and it's just fangs to the floor, and they end up killing some allied forces who are doing live-fire exercises, obviously in Afghanistan, but um, they yep. just, oh, someone's shooting down there, and then this went after it, so it can Absolutely. go south really quickly. Absolutely. Dude, so hog deployment, and then you come back, and then you transition to the Viper. What was it like going from the Hog to the Viper? A lot of fun. Besides amazing. A yeah. lot of fun. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. Uh, man, I was bad at air to air. So the, I couldn't, the speed was relative. Uh, I thought that I was going to have issues with the in- increase in speed. Uh, hog or flying around like, we have two two power settings, like idle and like land and go. 
Uh, so anytime you're airborne, you're pretty much just in max the entire time. No AB. Um, I thought that was going to be a problem. It wasn't. Uh, the, the the good thing about the A10 is I had a guy in B course uh, tell me uh, that you've heard this in cast before. Is it's like you don't need to write down anything on the nine line. It's like I'll feed you the data. It's like just fly in formation and be ready. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then I had a guy at B course tell me, he's just like, actually, Flash, to be perfectly honest with you, the only reason you are here is because I cannot physically reach over and hit your pickle butt. And he's like, if, <laughs> if I, he's like, if I could use your weapons and fly your A10, I would not need you. Um, I was like, oh, okay, sounds great. Uh, but I am here, so Got teach me. me. Um, so as far as as far as coming over to the Viper, I could do number two things really, really well. Like I was a flight lead in the A10, and I was like, cool, so I can I can be number two. Uh, so obviously coming in back into the wingman game, I was, I was pretty good. Uh, so it didn't go poorly for me, uh, as far as learning how to be a Viper pilot all the way up until I got to my time at Osan. And then when I got into the flug, I got absolutely exposed. Um, it was just like, I didn't know how to do any air to air, uh, did not really do any of that God's eye view picture building essay around outside of just like that one situation. Cause in the A-10, Pretty much the entire thing was me and 12, 12 miles of sky, 12 miles of earth that I just had to go put weapons down on. But now when right. I'm up, when I'm up in a Viper, like doing seed or doing air to air is I got me and 90 to 120 miles of DCA lane that I got to have SA on and predict the next flow, watch maneuvers and things like that. And I couldn't do that very well. And it took a, it took a pretty long time uh, to kind of get that. But at the same time, man, it was fun. It's just like a new, uh, a new, uh, mental stimulation and things of that nature that I was, uh, really enjoying, even though I wasn't necessarily enjoying it on the day to day. Yeah. Getting kicked in the teeth, but I would imagine too, your upgrade into as a flight lead in the Viper, I'm guessing was probably fairly quick. Whereas because you were an A-10 flight lead, and I know you're going to get your standard reps and things like that, but usually, uh, you're going to be a wingman for, you know, if you go to Korea, you're gonna be a wingman probably for you know, 10 months at least, yeah. you know, maybe 12 months before you're doing it. What was, was that similar to your timeline or no three months? Yeah. Uh, so you're so, not getting, you're, you're not getting a whole lot of time, like just doing air to air stuff and building that you probably got a couple DCA rides or something yeah, like that. It was like, imagine. and then when I was flying DCA as a wingman, I was like, this is great. Stay visual, shoot with what, what one tells you to shoot. Right. I was like, I can do that. Uh, but, and, so it was almost like I faked it until uh, I made it a little bit. And there was like, yeah, this guy's ready for the flug. He's, he's, there's not much else he's doing as a wingman. And I was just like, okay, yeah. And I kind of lulled myself into thinking that as well. Uh, but I didn't realize the number of decisions that happen at the flight level in that mission, in those mission sets. Again, the things in the A-10, incredibly difficult uh, cast scenarios and cast situations that we were in. But those were just different. And it wasn't anything that I was necessarily prepared for uh so yeah but yeah so it was like three months i showed up in like august uh august of 2014 after the b for after the b course after the tx and then i think i started my i i did one flood ride before christmas uh and then came back from christmas at osan uh to do the rest of my flood so about three to three and a half four months of uh wingman time dude yeah that's fast and furious and comparison wise, I think we talked. I don't know if we talked about it on uh, the bro chat you were on, but I know Bender's talked about it because I was talking to Dojo, who's a former F thirty five pilot. He was saying that you know, or sorry, he was a former F thirty demo pilot, but he was an F fifteen 
E dude, and he was saying seeing B coursers come out of the F-35, that their situational awareness is comparable to like where a four-ship flight lead would be in a fourth-gen platform. Maybe not airmanship. That's according to Bender. It sounds like there's some airmanship things that are kind of spicy, which you're just not doing. You know, that gives me reps doing things that you had to do as a fourth-gen wingman with seeing and being visual. But would you say that's a fair statement? Like, uh, you know, fifth-gen wingman coming out, being able to run a lane or doing what? Is it any different? I, it's, it is different. I, I agree with the statement that they're tactical inside of the airspace situational awareness is higher because it's, but the other argument that I make, so I, I also like to do this exercise is I will argue for the wingmen and against them and trying to defend the same, like defend them both with the same amount of passion. And so this one will be for them. Um, I agree. I think they, these wingmen on a tactical level are far away to far and away better than I was when I was their age. Um, I think they have more access to teaching tools. Uh, I think they have a little bit more access to uh, higher end tactics. I think I just, guys just wouldn't tell me the higher end tactics because it wasn't my prerogative as a wingman, like when I was growing up. Um, but now, like, I think they just have uh, higher SA on the tactical sense and in the uh, actual mission sets that they're, that they're doing. The argument on the flip side of that is the jet gives you that essay. Is like that is not because you went out and got it and you know how to parse and piece the right amount of SA and the comm and all the different things together. And your airmanship is so good that flying the jet is second nature. No, it's presented in front of you. And it's just like, yeah, I knew it was a three group champagne. You're like, how? It's just like, because all of it is right there. And uh, yeah, obviously, as you know, the Viper this is like, if I, I can't tell that. I just have to listen right. to the comm and uh, and kind of piece that together myself. So it's both sides is they are, they have higher essay, but it is also a better tool, uh, that is given to them to gain that essay in the fifth gen world. Yeah. So having those tools, I'm making an assumption that will make them more lethal. You think that's a fair statement? Yes, that's fair. Yeah. Cause now when it comes to battling down some big threats, like double digit Sam's and other fifth gen platforms, like you have, you have to have those to be survivable. Yeah. Never having flown a fifth gen platform, but oh yeah, I, I always say nice. that. I, I always say that in the in the F thirty five is all the things I was bad at in the F sixteen because it was hard to do with the Viper, um, is easy to do with the Panther. So it's like shoot two on a sh- shoot two on a short skate. Like if you can't shoot two on a short skate, then like dude, you are like we can't have it. And it's just like that, that that was like a badge of honor to be able to do that on a majority basis. Like if I was greater than 50, like, like baseball, like if I was great batting greater than 300 on short skates, shooting two, like I'm in the hall of fame, man. I was like, I, I became, right. I became a weapons <laughs> officer off of batting 320. And, and it's like, so, <laughs> but in the, in the Panthers, it's just like, dude, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a hundred percent every time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting to hear, you know, so, I mean, Technology is amazing, but I, really I jump is. forward just a little bit to the, the old F-35. You go Osan in the Viper, obviously, uh, for those who don't realize it's an F-16 and A-10 base, but you're flying F-16 there. When do you, when do you go to weapon school? Right after Osan. Okay. So you spent two years at Osan? A little bit over. I was going to do three. 
uh, we ended up uh, doing two years and four months uh, before I left in January of 17 to go to weapon school. How So, I mean, again, that's not a whole, in my mind, that's not a lot of time in the, the old Viper before going to weapon school. How was that? It was tough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. You'd have to ask some of the, some of the instructors, uh, which I'm still pretty good friends with them to this day, but like, they knew I was the A-10 guy coming in. Uh, that's for sure. And they knew that, uh, <laughs> the other one was, the other one was, I came in knowing that this was, this was, I was going to be behind and it did make me work. It made me work harder. Uh, the actual hard part about weapon school was that I had never done seed before and sorry, Osan, you didn't do seed. Um, but, uh, but, uh, stings, I, stings for those guys. Stings a little bit. I'm sorry, man. I did, like, I, it was, it was yeah, a nice, I did, I did it was a nice set of academics. Um, yeah, I did see a wild weasel post from Osan not too long ago. Oh, still doing it. I mean, and, I've, ne- I've, I've never been there, but I just hear you guys talk about it. I'm like, eh, whatever. yeah, it might be getting better. I've also, I got, again, six years of stale data. They might be awesome now. Um, but again, and the guys that did teach me there, that was, that was more of a joke, not as disparaging, but, uh, but going to weapons school, <laughs> it's a seed course. And especially because they knew that I had never done seed before and I came from the A-10 and I was going to Shaw, which is upwards of the, like it's the largest seed wing in the world, uh, F-16 seed wing in the world. Uh, and so as far as like going to Shaw and being a weapons officer there, like I needed to have credibility. And so guys did take me under their wing and that was the course was I, I busted every single ride. I went to a triple X ride on every single seed ride, no matter how good I did. Um, and so that was, and that was kind of, but I needed that. Uh, so as far as going to weapons school after two years and four months, I don't think that my time was any more difficult than the other 11 dudes in my class. Um, but as far as going, it was, uh, it was just different, uh, because of my background. Uh, I was the only guy who hadn't, who hadn't always flown the Viper. Right. So that was the, I mean, uh, yeah, I was like most guys at that point probably were, you know, they probably did an assignment like 18 months at Kunsan and then went to Shaw for three years. And yep. then, you know, so they, they had a lot of reps. They probably had, you know, deployment in the Viper. So just a lot of time and familiarity. Not that you didn't at that point, but again, that's still yeah. pretty, it's a lot of changes really fast. And seed, suppression of enemy air defenses, very complex mission set, which we'll talk a little bit more absolutely uh, in, in, a, in a bit. Absolutely. But what can some admin pieces, can you explain the the triple x ride and what what does that mean and i just remember going into doing wick support and seeing the doseki sign yep. out there and it was like always lit up so can you talk to me yeah, admin wise what's a triple x ride what, yeah how much stress is always there hanging over your head what, what is it like well if it gets bad enough your next sortie could be your last one every day and so like that's the <laughs> that's the that's the big thing is uh is getting washed out getting washed out of the course is always a threat. Um and then man, you just you just don't want to bring the class down. Like that's that was my biggest fear was that I was going to be so bad because I just didn't know stuff. Um that I was going to be a detriment to the class because you're flying together. So when I when I was number one, I had a classmate as number three, sometimes as number four. So if I was number three for number one in a seed ride and I was like then they were teaching me how to fly a seed for the very first time. And I'm like, man, if we don't do good, we both fail. And that was my biggest fear was that someone was going to fail a ride because I didn't know how to do something. Uh, so that was what maybe kind of worked a little bit harder. But as far as the triple X ride, 
Uh, so let's say you have seed one. Uh, it's a syllabus ride. You go out there, not good enough, going to see this one again. Uh, the next ride is seed one X. Uh, so just that syllabus denominator that you're on an X ride that you busted your last one, you're sitting on a bust, which also has a little bit of supervision uh, associated with it. And then that one, also not good enough, dude. You're going to see it again. Uh, now you're on double X. They light up the Dozeki sign. Uh, you walk in and you just look up there. It's like, yep, that's lit up for me. Um, and then <laughs> if that one doesn't go well, then you go to a triple X ride. So triple X rides, uh, which I also have a funny story about a uh, triple X ride, um, kind of in keeping with the trend of uh, like IFS. Uh, but as far as if you bust that one, then you go to a triple X ride. And they actually just like put a piece of paper with another X up on the Dozeki sign. Uh, and then that ride, if you bust that one, you're going to a P ride with the commander. Like you're going to a progress ride. Um, and the P ride can be, yep, he's going to continue with the course. He or she is going to continue with the course. Or yep, he or she is going to be done uh, and go from there. So the triple X ride as you go through is just denoting that you are not nailing it uh, on this sortie um, and kind of go, and kind of going from there. So as far as that's concerned, uh, the funny story about it is the last day of weapons, like weapons phase for me, uh, before you get into weapon school integration, the weapons phase, if you get through weapons, you are almost home free at weapon school. Uh, and I went to a triple X ride on my last day of weapons before uh, integration. That usually denotes a P ride. But my instructors, okay. uh, it was Deuce Dufresne, uh, came up to me and just goes, Flash, this is a triple X ride. It is not a P ride. And it showed me what he meant by that was he was just like, he's like, you need to see this one again. We're going to teach you more stuff. And they were like literally squeezing every ounce of juice they could out of this course to teach me things. But they wanted me to know that I was not in danger of failing the course. Um, so then even that almost made me work even harder uh, than, than to show up on a P ride. But uh, but yes, yeah, so that's the triple X ride It's just. Uh, failing it three times, going to a triple X ride. Next ride, if you don't pass this one, dude, you're going with the commander and it's a P ride. The one aspect that I think it takes a while for people to get used to, but it just becomes commonplace. One, you know, from day one of ROTC or the Academy, you're getting racked and stacked. And, you know, everything you're doing is being stratified. There's a number one, there's a number last. Everything is being graded, whether you know it or not. And that just carries on through. The other aspect of it too, that I think was like a really big motivator to me that I think some people find surprising. You don't come from the fighter pilot world or the pilot world in general, but like weapons academics or weapons tests that you would, you know, you would do once a week or maybe it's once a month, whatever it might be that frequency, like those test scores are posted right outside the vault where everyone can see it, you know, and it is a motivator when you're at the bottom of the list. Cause you don't want to be the wedge and it, it, those things too, like, I mean, I'm, you remember high school or whatever, middle school, even, even college, like if you fail the test and some people are shy about it, they don't want to talk about it, dude, like the, you, everyone in the squadron knows that you busted a ride and this is an X ride or this is a, I mean, no kidding, a Dozeki's neon sign lit up and they light the X's up as you go. Like, it's just something that is, I think is, I think is an important part of the culture. And it's not to shame or ridicule i mean it it is a motive it's a, it was a motivating, motivating factor yeah i mean like you like I, I would prefer that not be me anymore like how do i unwedge how do i unwedge myself um not that it's necessarily being the wedge like that's just part of it and 
again, you know, busting a ride, maybe it was still decent, but you're just going to get some more training out of it. Uh, you know, you know, you've, you've been a weapons officer, so you know, oh, yeah. you've handed out many an X ride. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's come yeah. full circle. Oh, it's just writing in, writing in your little notebook. Yeah. I like to do it with a smile on the face though, a little bit. I'm just like, Hey man, this is just another opportunity to learn that I promise I was like, you're going to be better for it. But yeah, not, I completely agree. It's like you, you put it up there and everyone knows. And then at the same time, like triple X rides was class rallying time. It was like, what is you, what do you need? Like, what do you need? Like, I'll write your brief for you. You can practice your brief. There'd always be like two or three guys. Whenever I was on an extra event, my class was awesome. I'd, I can't say enough about those guys is the experience that we had and the guys that were good at seed, um, kind of made me who I was today and just getting up to their level by the end of the time I was there, just let me kind of jump, uh, from the, from the beginning. So triple X rides are also a good time for, uh, rallying around a team, uh, that I've also taken like into leadership stuff, uh, going forward. Yeah. And that aspect of it too, that I really think is important because one, you know, the, the team is there and like, you're in the trenches, right? Like while it's just training, yeah, you're simulating being in the trenches for later on down the road. Absolutely. But it also removes those barriers to learning. Like, whereas you might learn, you're definitely learning a few things when you're on that X ride or why you're doing it. And while making it more public and out front, I think makes it, it's going to make it a lot easier to share and talk about like, yeah, man, I busted that ride. Boom. Here's what I did. You know, you just download all the info to make everyone better in the process. And that's the name of the game is just making everyone better. Absolutely. And it was, it was limiting the number of the repeat mistakes across the class. Uh, I mean, everybody talks about that. It was just like, it was like by the end, by the end of it, everyone had made a thousand different mistakes. And, but if the entire class is making a thousand, a thousand of the same mistake over and over and over, then it's just, then that's a sign of a poor class. And so we had a long list of, uh, of errors that we had solved uh, that were all different, which was uh, what I was told later on was the mark of a good class. I, you know, okay. Apples and oranges comparing a pilot training class to a weapons school class. But I do think there's some parallels, like even, you know, being a fape again, I'm not comparing the two, but I do no, think you there absolutely are parallels can. You with, absolutely can. with like, you know, if you would do a ride with a student and you're, you see the same mistakes over and over again, every single class, but telling a student, you know, something, and then what you're doing is watching to see if that emanate or that information gets disseminated amongst the class. So they don't make that same mistake. And if you're going to go to pilot training, the worst thing you can be is play. I have a secret and then carry that mentality forward because instructors are watching. Like, do you share your lessons learned? Because then they're going to come back and talk about it in the you know flight commander's office. And you're looking to see who, who's the team player who's out for it for themselves. And then, you know, does the class get better? And there's definitely a class. You're like, man, this class was awesome. They make, everyone makes mistakes, but they like rally around it, make it better. It was actually an Academy class was like my favorite class. And now it's kind of cool to see those guys out in the road in a different life. So, you know, Academy guys always get a bad rap. Yep. We're not, we're not so bad. We, we have like a modicum of social skills, uh, (laughs) coming out, uh, but it's not much. But, uh, but yeah, every now and then, every now and then, dude. So, uh, obviously you go to Shaw to be the weapons officer of the tigers. That's kind of interesting to hear you say like, obviously no real seed experience and then go into the largest seed wing. I imagine, I mean, when you walked out of weapons school, 
um, going to Shaw? Like what was going through your mind? Like, is there a lot of stress or is there a weight on your shoulders to like go now teach seed with really only having done seed at weapon school? Or I mean, is that even a, a factor? Yeah. Uh, again, same kind of the same kind of the same thing. I was just like, it's my job to make this squadron combat deployable and combat ready uh, to to go fight if in the event we're called upon, which we almost were called upon when I was there. Um, well, we were called upon and turned off, but uh, but yeah, so that was that was a little bit. But the stress the stress wasn't um, like was I going to be good enough? I I knew I had some game. And I knew that I could teach, uh, going through weapon school will do that. And it's just like, I had a, a confidence that I could do it. Um, the biggest one was just, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I was never, I had never been the guy to the young wingman. Like I was always the person learning and now the training was not about me. And so I had to be the person that the training was all about everybody else. And I didn't know if I could do that. Um, and as a, as it turned out, it was a challenge and just trying to figure out how to reach every single person in the squadron to make them the best fighter pilot they could be, um, was a, was a task in itself. But as far as like showing up to Shaw, uh, I found out that I was better than I thought I was. Um, I was like, but at the same time, it was kind of one of the and weapon school told me that there's like, Hey man, you're going to find out that this actually prepared you pretty good. Uh, but as far as like showing up there, being able to teach and just kind of some of the things that happened was the things that were difficult about Shaw had nothing to do with like teaching dudes how to fly seed. Uh, it was more about just getting a squadron prepared uh, to be and developed to be good fighter pilots. And uh, but yeah, it was great. I did, as far as professional life at Shaw, um, it was a it was a decent it was a decent time. What were some of the difficulties in preparing a squadron to be ready fighter pilots? Um, there was some disagreements on, uh, from the lower level, like the middle level, I would say at the tactical level, uh, this was around the time when there was just a shortage and you just had a bunch of young women. We'd also just come back from a deployment and, or the squadron had, I did not go with them, obviously. Uh, I was at weapon school, uh, but when they came back, they PCS'd all their experience. And so when we were told that we were potentially going to go to combat was we didn't have the people to do that. Like we didn't have the qualifications of the experience. So at the time, the solution to that was just to kind of do these speeding and push through upgrades. And I just don't believe in that. I, d I believe in very methodical, deliberate development that is, um, that cannot be repli cannot be rushed uh and you have to get repetition in certain things like you can do some uh some things to get repetition very quickly but you have to have a requisite amount of experience that the things i can't necessarily teach you you will still just be able to conceptually bring back to the forefront of your brain in combat in a stressful situation and i think that just takes time so when they were saying it's just like hey this guy's got 120 hours he's going to go in the flug and then as soon as he was done with the flug roll right into an iPug was something I disagreed with. Um, but that was the, that was what we had to be done. So I understood it because we had to have people to fly as one and three, but it was something I disagreed with and the back and forth between the, uh, upper tactical, uh, positions of authority and leadership commanders, DOs, and all these different things to get 
the things they needed to go to, to go to combat. And me at the level of sitting there and looking at the bros and just being like, Hey, if we rush this guy along, like he's got to fail in combat, which could mean failure uh, of the mission. And it also will mean his life. And right. so that was the the balance and having to figure that out um, was the most difficult thing to get, to get folks ready for uh, was to listen uh, to both ends of the spectrum, understand both, and then also take this message and portray it uh, in a manner down to the bros when even they might not agree uh, with what's overall happening. Interesting time period. Cause I remember from, you know, I was doing demo and kind of removed, I think during that time period from what was going on in a lot of the squadrons, but a lot of my buddies who in the other squadron, I think in those in very similar situations where they hadn't even completed the full flug, they had a bunch of, uh, you know, top off rides to complete and they got moved right into the, the IPUG. Yep. And several of them who are a couple of them who are, you know, FAPES. So they already had some experience saying like, dude, I am not ready, which there's always that piece of like, Hey, I don't think I'm ready for this. But then it, it was a legitimate, like, dude, I know I'm not ready to go into this. Like I have just finished the flug. Um, and that was kind of echoed. So that was a interesting time period. No idea what's going on on now and if that's been fixed. But I think during that time period too, like I, I think specifically, I remember sitting at a table with some people who were tigers that, turned down going to weapon school and they were sitting in front of the man of why they wanted, they would, they did not want to go to weapon school, which is, yeah. um, and you know, it's a whole nother conversation of itself, but I think it was indicative of that, that time period at least where guys are getting pushed through. And then kind of what you touched on earlier too, like they're assessing where their life, what, what their life goals are and what their life objectives are. And for those listening who aren't familiar, like I think turning down weapon school, that's just something that's really just never happened. Yeah. In the history, it was one of those things that like every you're that's where you're always you're shooting for and trying to attain. And so this shift, this paradigm shift is occurring. Yeah. Culture, you know, the, everything's there's a lot. There's there's changes. And um, yeah, again, I don't know if that's still true, if you're seeing that or what what your thoughts are on that. I mean, right now in the F-35 community, the, the I've the applicant pool for weapon school is high. Uh, I think I think it's still um a goal for, uh, for people. And it's just another, it's just another step in development. Like that, when you were talking saying like, I can't compare being a FAPE in a pilot training room to weapon school. Yes, you can. Is they're the exact same overarching conceptual environment is you have instructors and you have students and you are just trying to get those students to create a cohesive team to develop together. And so when you're looking at some of these things, in the event that you do things such as rush development, you then break down the cohesiveness of that team. And when people, I, I had some people at, at Shaw, uh, which I sat, sat there and talked to this uh, with numerous people, is they said, hey, I know that I'm only in this upgrade because there's no one else and we have to. And there is... And again, I I kind of disagreed with them, uh, but at the same time, it was their feelings and their perception, and so that is true to them. So when there's like I I just have to be in this upgrade, and I don't think I did good enough to pass that ride, but you pass me because we have to, and we're on a timeline. And so actually, when I what I saw was guys getting rushed into upgrades, then their confidence went down as they finished their upgrade. When your confidence is supposed to go the other direction as you're going through an upgrade. Right. 
like you are developing and you are getting better and your job, your satisfaction and fulfillment in your job is by knowing that you're doing the right things to get better. And that when you are put into these situations, you're ready. And so because they had been rushed through a little bit, uh, they felt unready uh, to go do these things. And then what we were being asked to do was they were actually, it was lowering their morale, passing upgrade rides. And wow. like that's, and that was, that was a real thing. And I, it was a, a very interesting. And this is something that I, I just love personally, uh, enjoy studying is just how that human behavior and how that situation occurred. Um, where guys were just like, I'm passing these upgrade rides, which is generally a good thing in the fighter pot community. And it was actually lowering right. their morale to the point where they were done with their upgrade at the iPug level. And we're just like, Hey, would you like to go to weapon school? And they were like, no. And so I, I drew like a very linear, uh, correlation to, uh, to those two events, to those two types of things occurring. Um, and again, a thousand factors, contributing factors to all those things that we, that we won't even broach, but it happened. Um, I would say at least three people that I had, uh, that I talked to, that was a direct thing that they were looking at. There was like, my morale went down by finishing this upgrade. And one got to the point where he separated from the air force, uh, um, earlier than what we would normally think and actually got out of his commitment, uh, because of the stress that it caused. Wow. Yeah. That's man. There are a lot of, there are a lot of dynamics. I just remember that time period because fighter pilot shortage, fighter pilot crisis, whatever we want to call it. And then I think you eloquently put it in the bro chat. Like what if, when is it no longer a crisis? Like if we just keep calling it a crisis, like now it's just like the, it's the status quo. It's the norm, it's the norm. I forget how you said it, but yeah, this is just, we've, we've accepted it. Uh, but manning for sure. in the fighter pilot world is a challenge for a variety of reasons. Flash wrote a very eloquent article on war on the rocks about retention, which again, I, Linked it in the bro chat the first time. I'll do it again uh, here. I think in the first bro chat, you said you were going to write uh, the follow-up to that. Yeah. I have a, I have yeah. draft. Uh, I am on V3. Uh, so I I, okay. I I broke my word to you, Raina, and I, I, I deeply apologize. Um, <laughs> You're busy. Uh, I I am, but I started, I'm on V3 of the of the drafts. Um, I'm on the project for our summer deployment. Uh, that's taken up a little bit of my time. Uh, and then, but, uh, no excuses, but like a champion, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I am <laughs> there's, as we t talked about in the first time is like that, that first article was more about what I went through and what, and how to, and what a lot of people kind of have gone through, uh, taking my experience and, uh, putting it in the broader scope of demographics of the entire air force, uh, or the entire fighter pop community. Uh, and then the next one was, what do you do about it? Uh, so that's what I'm writing at the moment. Uh, and I think some of the things that we look at is, is all these different things is the world is changing, uh, and our policies have not. And so we kind of have to just get up with, uh, get up with the times, if you will, uh, to, to get after this, this, the norm of the pilot, fighter pilot shortage. Times are changing. That's the piece. I think, you know, yeah, uh, we could go on for this oh, for yeah. days and days, but it's, it's amazing. Just, um, comparing everyone has their problems, right? So blanket statement, but some, some of the stuff that we do is just like mind boggling. Like if it takes me two hours to log in to do a three minute task, like a three minute task without fail will take me 42 minutes every single time. 100%. Like it's just, 
simple stuff. You're like, all right, I can't do this. And that's just, that's admin, right? Yep. And that's, we're just trying to scratch the surface, but. Oh yeah. Um, so, all right, real quick, uh, we'll, we'll dive from that. Cause I don't want to keep eating up all your time, but I do want to talk. So you go back and you teach at weapons school, right? And then out of that, you transition to the F-35. Did you know you're going to go back and teach at the weapons school? How does that work? I did. I knew I was, I, I had an idea that after Shaw, I was going to go back and teach in the Viper weapons school. Um, just uh, a potential that that was going to be my next assignment. It was also what I wanted to do. Uh, so at Shaw, going through the entire thing, um, started to have some things in personal life that uh, that were not congruent with being able to stay at Shaw. Uh, so kind of had to get out of there. Kind of had to get out of that environment um, as far as what we needed to, what we needed to do. So I asked if I could go back and teach the weapon school early. If there's any way we could get back there early. Uh, but then when they came back, they was like, Hey, you can go back to Nellis early, but we're actually going to have you teach in the F-35. Uh, so I, I was like, okay, sounds great. Any, literally anything that, that was very cool yeah. to go to the F-35, but I was like, yeah. uh, near rocks was depart this, this environment, uh, and get out to, and get out to Nellis. So going to teach the weapon school was a thing. Uh, teaching in the F-35 was not something that I had anticipated, uh, up until about the three to four months prior to actually going. Dude, going to teach at the weapons school, but then going to teach in F-35, I imagine there was a few challenges uh, with, because you got a TX, right? And then you got to be at the level of a weapons school instructor. What was that like? Uh, tough again. Uh, so yeah, just pain. The, uh, the, the thing about that one is, is this is now what you're prepared to do. Uh, the development that I had gotten over time and then just uh, things of that nature and kind of talking about some of the, how to handle these situations that you find yourself in is when I showed up to the weapon school is again, there's a best instructor. There's a worst instructor. We don't necessarily know who they are, but there is one. Uh, when I first showed up, I was the worst. Like I was the worst instructor because I'd never flown the airplane before. I actually effectively did weapon school again with monster and wood in uh, 19 Bravo. Um, but as far as, as far as like just coming back there and doing it is I had to find the value I could provide. And so when you're looking at like the humble, approachable, credible, um, motto and credo of a weapons officer was that it was a humbling experience. Uh, but what I could do, uh, was I could make myself approachable to the, to the WUGs, uh, to the weapons officer upgrade upgradees, um, that I had gone through weapons school before. And now I'm effectively doing it again with you. And I could help them navigate the stresses of that course from the capacity that I was currently in while learning how to fly the airplane. So I was not going to be uh, the joust breeze and the um, and the rags uh, seltzer and some of the guys uh, that could just sit there and just tell dudes uh, everything about the three dash one and, and the ins and outs of flying the F thirty five. But what I could do is I could tell them how to handle uh, going back to the wood dorm and writing your brief at night and interacting and disagreeing with an instructor and things of that nature and kind of go from there. And as far as the humbling experiences, uh, I think, uh, I've been told this before in my life and I like to live by it is, is it is the most arrogant thing you can do to actually not speak up when you have value, uh, and let someone fail. And so what I was basically doing was I was being humbled by only providing the value that I had is like, and shutting up when you don't. 
Uh, so as far as like just showing up is finding those those times when you were valuable, sitting back and learning uh, the entire time, inserting yourself into a situation that you actually can provide some value and then sitting back. And then over time, I got decent. Uh, like you're around that caliber of, of people. And then also just in the environment that you're just always talking, like the, what you were just talking about, there's not a whole lot of queef at weapons school. Uh, there's not a whole lot of admin uh, at weapons school where you're doing a bunch of different stuff. There's just there's just tactics uh, for the most part. Um, and you're just awesome. around it all the time and you're picking up everything and you're learning from everybody. Uh, supposedly the best instructors in the world. Uh, I believe that everybody else was. I don't necessarily put myself in that category. But at the same time, it's just like you're just learning from all these guys and you get good over time. And then at the end of my time, I was able to be the guy that stood up in front of a lot of people and actually talked like, okay, this guy's got some credibility in the F-35 and kind of go from there. But the journey from start to finish uh, was a uh, an experiment in human development in itself. So, Dude, Flash, uh, we're getting close to the end here, but I got a couple questions for you. And one of which uh, I want to ask is I think you're the perfect guy to ask this question. And this uh, gentleman, he was prior enlisted, wanted to be a pilot, got picked up for OTS. So just off the get go, uh, I think for those, like that's a really challenging thing to do to get picked up while enlisted. Like there's a lot of hurdles, jump over jumping. And then he didn't become a pilot. He's going to go fly drones. And he goes, what's the stigma? What do you know pilots think of drone pilots? So curious to hear what you, you would say to him. I think they're pilots. Um, and they serve a, they serve an incredible, um, niche capability that we have in the in the department of defense is as far as like the stigma that we have with drone pilots i have a stigma about drone pilots uh that act like they should not be drone pilots and want to be fighter pilots and think that they have to act a certain way to like prove their pilotness uh that's what i there's that's where the stigma kind of comes into you but as far as is like my own personal and what a lot of people think is it's like there's going to be I make fun of guys that fly MQ-9s less than I make fun of guys who fly Strike Eagles and less than I make fun no. of guys that fly C-models <laughs> and things of that and and things of that nature. So it's just different communities. But as far as uh, going from enlisted to OTS to pilot training to being a drone pilot, first off, congrats to this individual. Uh, and then second, just like, go be good at your job and the stigma isn't there because I'll tell you what, there was one story in Afghanistan and... uh if we get to, if we have a little bit of time, I'll tell, I'll, we'll tell one more story if that's okay with you, Rain. Uh, but dude, yeah. one, well, one the, the, I don't want to take your time. Oh, dude, so no, yeah, we're I all got, about story time, I got, man. I got, yeah. I got, I got some time. I got time for you, Rain. I got any time, any time. Yeah, <laughs> Bethany said, clear the calendar. Bethany said she'd pick, pick the kids up from school today. Um, <laughs> but like the most uh, combat additive uh, situation that I had in Afghanistan was provided by an MQ1, uh, was provided by a predator. And so as far as uh, stigma amongst drone pilots is you can create one for yourself, uh, just like a fighter pilot can. Uh, but as far as the, as far as that one, uh, as being a UAV pilot, you provide an incredible resource and asset to the, uh, to the air force and DOD, uh, by flying that stick to that, do your job good. Uh, and there's nothing else for it. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Especially the, the stigma, like you can create it yourself because it could be anyone who does that. And it's like, I don't know. Dude, own what you do. Be the best at what you do. As I'm same. Like I remember, you know, doing OIR. So 
If you were zipping up into Syria and you knew there was a drone on station, you knew it was going to be a good day because yes. you were going to do work. I couldn't do my job. If there without- wasn't a drone on station, and if there wasn't one on station, now you're going to have to go build the pattern of life, and you're going to have to convince them that these are the bad guys. But if there is a drone on station, it's been there for the last 12 hours. They already have the target sets built, and they're just waiting for you to show up. Yep. So, dude, it is a force multiplier, and then. You know, real in all reality, it pains me to say it, right? Like, we're, we're only going to do more autonomous operations, and you know, there's going to be less people in cockpits down the road. So, it's probably the future. It to is a certain degree. It know? is. So, yeah, that that's good. What's uh, what's what's your Afghanistan story? I want to hear this. Oh, I don't, I don't, that one was uh, that was a pretty good one. So, Sajon two one was the uh, MQ one. We get called to a we get called to a pry, um. And just south of Kabul, but uh, uh, so shit, not here or there, somewhere in Afghanistan. Uh, there I was, beautiful country, beautiful country this time of year. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, show up and we're kind of building some SA on the way, and we get a nine line in route, and they said, Hey, there's just this many folks kind of around. And as soon as I show up, Sajan 21 is on station, and me and my uh, flight lead, I was the wingman actually at the time. And we check on station and, uh, there's like side on two, one on station. Uh, I think it was like 19,000 feet. I was like, cool. Uh, I don't like to go above 18,000 feet in the A-10. So, wow, that's going to be great. It's perfect. Uh, it's going to be perfect. So when we show up, I guarantee you this guy, uh, was a former fighter pilot that then got sent to, to UAVs, um, potentially. But as soon as I showed up, he just goes, uh, Call and ready, steer one five one one, uh MSA nine line alpha. So he already had the nine line and steer one five one one laser code. So he's putting out laser energy that I could slave my targeting pod to, hit laser spot track, and as soon as I do it, get the little container, uh, and I see people uh underneath my underneath the targeting pod. And in all reality in Afghanistan, that was probably about the second time ever uh that I was actually gonna employ weapons that I actually saw what I was having to, to target. Um, so again, like roll in, we employ, uh, these are bad people, by the way, uh, confirmed. Uh, in fact, they were actively shooting, uh, and things of that nature. You can see that in your targeting pod. Uh, but as soon as I showed up, like we had the nine line and within 90 seconds, we were tar- eyes on and tally target and, uh, asking for, uh, asking for clearance to employ. Uh, and that was given to us by side jump. So, uh, then as soon as we came off target, that one's done. He just goes shift Northwest corner of the clearing stair one, five, one, one. It's like, <laughs> okay. Uh, Sweet. so just like zoom the target pot out, stare, uh, laser spot track again. And it just slaved to the Northwest corner. And there again, uh, is people and you can see them shooting. And now they're like running across back to where, uh, their former buddies were. Um, but, and that, that happened four more times. And it was just like, it was just like, there they are, there they are, there they are, there they are. And they provided all the targeting data for us. Uh, and we were able to win the day, if you will, in a very short amount of time because of the, uh, like the force added, uh, force addition that they were. Uh, and as far as just like, they enhanced our lethality that day uh, and helped out. So as far as the MQ-1 is concerned, uh, that was a, that was a dub. And what I initially think of those guys and I, and I see, <laughs> and I see their, their capabilities. So when they don't, uh, 
like perform up to that capability, that's when I start to, uh, I'm like, dude, I've seen you do good. I've seen you do good before. You can do better. Uh, I know, I know what you're capable of. That's yeah. I mean, you got a dude or two dudes or dudettes sitting there who are just building SA and all they're doing right is just looking through a very nice camera. Yep. And they can see things. They're amazing. So it's a huge force multiplier. And they're looking. That's my one funny for. story from. Yeah, my uh, one funny story is I was over MC12. I was over Kandahar. We we're doing some base defense. And I just, I happened to look down at the like most exact perfect moment ever in the history of time as I watched an MQ9 cartwheel down the runway into this massive <laughs> fireball. I was like, well, I guess we're going to get extended here because there's one runway and uh, we're not landing here. Oh, no. So I was like, I couldn't have timed it any better. I couldn't imagine landing those things. So again, like they hand that off. For those who don't know, they hand it off. They're flying it somewhere in the world, you know, back in the United States typically, and they hand it off to a crew that is on the ground at that airfield so they can do direct line of sight. They don't have a satellite lag. But landing that thing with just, I'm sure it's gotten better, but you're just 2D view, you know, like looking out front. Sounds sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. So put some wind in there, some gust. Like, huh, no, no yeah, thank that's you. Yeah, th- that's a no thanks for me, Bob. Yeah, that's a- hard hard nope thanks. <laughs> yeah. Hard nope thanks, friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to... I'm going to pass on exactly. that. But yeah, and never again. I mean, just be able to look out the window and see that happen. It was just like, dude, good thing there's no people there. But I think that one had, it was like they just had started carrying GBU-12s yeah. at that point, you know. So then, you know, that's a whole other factor as that thing goes careening down the runway. But yeah, drones, man. What can you do? What can you do? What? Just out what there. What can you do? Just out there, just getting pissed on by gas. <laughs> that's right, man. <laughs> Again, I'll go back to like, you got to wonder like you ever, one day, right? I hope we find out, you know, you hear this Russian just telling the story of like what he was thinking when he's like, or yeah, like that cockpit audio going back and gotta forth. Like, it. all right, here's what we're going to do. I got to have it. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. It's like, could you imagine Harry, man, just going to pass over it about, you know, 500 feet back and they're probably talking in meters. You're going to start dumping fuel and we're just going to douse this thing. Like what? What lieutenant came up with that idea? That's what it is. Well, I, here's what I like. I when I first saw it, I was just like that. Just like you're talking about, I was like, I got to hear the cockpit video or the audio. Um, yeah. But here was here's what I thought they were going to do was that the next thing before they actually hit it was that they were going to dump fuel on it, and then they were going to dump flares on it. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, they're just going to light this thing on fire. I was like, they're going to give it a shot. <laughs> and it's like, could you imagine? Oh my gosh! But that first off, if they did that, that is some skill. And that would have been, that would have been some massive skill. Uh, but that was, that was what I was like, Oh, here it comes. It like, here's what's going to happen. How would, could you even do that? I don't think you could. You'd have to like have some like lead, like close trail formation. Yeah. I don't think you start dumping fuel and light it. I don't, I don't think, would it ignite? I don't know. If, I don't think it, I don't think you could do it, but Hey, you know what? I, I hope the Russians aren't watching this because they're going to try it. Like, right, like I got an idea. Got an idea. We'll show them this time. Hey, man, this guy named Flash gave me this idea to dump fuel and then light it on fire. But like, could you? Yeah, again, you. I like, wonder. Like, all right, I got an idea. This is how we're going to scare it. And also, like, what is the point in scaring a drone? Uh, you know, this stuff happened. Like, remember, was it a? Uh, it was a P three in China. Yeah. Was it like, or was it early two thousands where the hit the nose? The P three had to divert into uh, China. Yeah. Not what you want. Not what you want. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's not hard. Uh, hard, hard nope. Nope. That's a no, that that's a no well. for me. I'm not going to China. But, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, reckless stuff. What was your favorite aspect of flying the A-10, the F-16, and now the F-35? Which one would you go? Which which one do you want to fly? I want to fly the F thirty five. This is the this is the okay. one. Um, I think this is the the mission sets that we're doing and the capability that the airplane has is just ridiculous. Um, the the way that just the way the future like going in with the F thirty five is is I'm unsure uh, what then what the future holds for manned fighter aircraft. I think the F thirty five is probably going to be like the I would say maybe one of the uh, last ones that we probably build. I would say maybe like, I don't know, three to four more. But again, that's actually, that's that's 500 years from now. We have no idea what the world's going to look like. Uh, but at least in my lifetime, I think uh, the F-35 is going to be around for a while. I'm still going to be pretty futuristic, if you will. Uh, so as far as picking one, the F-35, it's, it's, and it's not that close. Um, but as far as like the best part about uh, flying all the things uh, is just being able uh, to have an impact at each of those stages. Like in the A-10, had an impact by going to Afghanistan and the F-16, like to think I had an impact by um, furthering some tactics in the community and then just getting to teach kid, teach dudes. Uh, and then in the F-35, I've gotten have some, uh, as I've gotten older, some really cool opportunities to um, kind of shape how the F-35 interacts inside of the greater picture and uh, shape how the military fights wars uh, in the event that they happen. Uh, so, like, and hopefully they don't. Uh, but so as right. far as, like, the best part about it is, uh, I think my, like, going out and beating somebody in an airplane 1v1 is uh, coming to, uh, is on is on the back nine, if you will. Uh, but I'm just starting to now kind of get into a little bit of a ramp up on being able to do other things outside of the cockpit uh, that is really cool uh, that I really enjoy. So those are the kind of the things. But yeah. Dude. Awesome. Well, Flash, I got one more question for you and then I'm going to ask you. We're going to say goodbye, but uh, I'm going to ask you to hang around afterwards yeah. for a There I Was story. Yeah. That keeps the lights on for the for my Patreon supporters yeah. and then the Apple Podcast subscribers. I, gotta go, I, got, so, I think I got uh, an okay one for you. Yeah, I'm sure you got a few. So again, you know, if people want to check it out, that's what that's what you know pays for all the subscriptions and things like that. But um, if you saw 15, 16 year old Flash walking down the street today, is there any advice you'd give him? Tell him to do something different, change something. Would he listen to you? That's what that's one I get is like, I have 15 year old Flash, like 15 year old Rain wouldn't listen to me. I'm like, it's probably a valid point. Yeah, I would. I would tell that kid some some stuff. Uh, the first one is the first one I would say kind of go back to the Air Force Academy story is find some discipline the biggest regret I have in my life is that I didn't play all four years of football at the academy just because I didn't work hard enough Um, it was yeah that was just poor and I hate it every single day Uh, as far as um, it was just based on being undisciplined not doing your homework and not working hard at the sport you love uh, at an environment that they gave you the opportunity you wanted and kind of squandered that one. So I would tell that 15, 16 year old kid to just find some discipline. And my parents were instilled that in me too. It was like that I was disciplined at home, but then when I was off on my own for about a year and a half, like I was like, I lost it. So anyways, that's what I tell them at the first one. The second one is, man, I really wish, um, 
early in my career, uh, the personal stuff at Shaw was the Air Force has provided me some incredible opportunities, but it is not life. Air Force, like the Air Force is not life. Uh, I kind of mortgaged a little bit of my family to be a really good weapons officer. Um, so I would have, I wish I could go back and fix that. I think I could have been just as good of a weapons officer and a way better husband and father uh, during those times. Uh, so I would go back and just kind of lay out these scenarios uh, and go from there. I'm still married uh, happily. Uh, so that's great. Uh, cause that's, um, I don't think we were ever in danger of really getting there. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, I was gone all the time. I volunteered for everything. I always stayed late. I was always on the phone, taking every single phone call, uh, and all these different things and just putting, uh, put and not and misprioritizing, uh, the things that, that were at work than the things that were at home. So I would tell that kid, uh, to figure that out earlier, um, because you can, once I actually found a better balance, I actually became a better weapons officer. Uh, and I was actually able to teach kids a little bit, uh, teach dudes a little bit better about how to handle things outside of the military. Cause what they were doing was they were coming to work and being phenomenal. And then they would go home and their home lives were disasters. Um, and I was able to do a little bit better. So that would be the second thing, uh, that I would tell somebody, uh, third thing that I would tell myself, uh, we're talking about myself again. Yeah. Uh, the, the yeah. third, the, the, that's okay. sage advice though. Cause that's, I mean, the air force is going to squeeze every yep. ounce. They're going to take everything they can out of yep. you and you have to meter that. And unfortunately, you know, often it's not, you have to learn it the hard way, you know, unless you catch it early. Absolutely. Enough. So, and yeah. then the third, third, uh, thing. third thing, uh, be less emotional. Uh, so, uh, at, at the end of my time in the active duty, uh, there were some, some career things that were going on. One that was out of my control, one that was kind of within my control. But as far as I, when I was handling things on whether I was going to separate or uh, stay in the active duty was just like you just said, the Air Force is going to try to squeeze every ounce out of you. And they were still trying to do that. They were trying to do that. I was trying to figure life out. And those two things, I didn't handle them very well. Um, it was to the, it was to the point where uh, I already have a problem with authority. I have a massively high tolerant, like high uh, threshold for leadership. And if you're in a position of leadership or a position of authority, like I feel that you have to earn it to your people every single day. Um, and I just have just a pretty high threshold for it, which also leads to a little bit of a problem with authority, to be honest with you. It's got me in trouble a lot. It's okay though. Um, but what I would, yeah. <laughs> but what I would tell that, but what I would say is just like, leave emotion out of it. Um, when things are, when things were, weren't going my way, um, there were certain days when I allowed like my mood and my stress of going through that time. Cause it's the most stressful time in your life trying to figure out a brand new career path. I mean, you, you've done it. Like you separated from the yeah. air force and you're forging this new path of podcasting and general aviation and all these different things and still uh, being around the aviation community and, and, and doing all these different things. But that's a shift from being in the active duty military. And that's a very stressful shift yeah. because it's unknown and you're scared that you're going to fail and things like that. And if you're making the right decision. And when I was going through that, I got like emotional with the people that had authority over me. And, uh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Um, but it's, so I would have liked to have coped ahead, uh, to be able to do that and just kind of, uh, keep your emotions in check and keep emotions out of professional situations. Cause they have no real place. Um, and I would have given myself that advice as well. So those three things. So, uh, be disciplined at an earlier age, balance your life at an earlier age than before it becomes too late. 
And then when you have issues with people in positions of authority over you, just leave emotions out of it uh, would be the three things I'd tell my 15, 16 year old self. Dude, I'd tell my 38 year old self that as well. <laughs> so sage advice flash. I appreciate you taking the time, man. I'm excited to, for you to hang around for a there. I was story. Yeah. And just again, man, thanks for sharing this and hopefully we'll uh, hear more flash over on the Ashburn podcast. So flash, thanks for joining Dude, me. Man. Rain, thank you again. Uh, again, this is a huge honor. Uh, uh, to be able to be on this, uh, be on this podcast. I've watched some of your guys' stuff, and and uh, you're killing it, man. Keep it up. You're reaching a lot of people, and uh, just again, uh, very honored to be considered to actually be on an episode with you, dude. Well, I really appreciate it. It's it's uh, humbling to hear that, and again, hopefully this this helps one person out. That's like the name of the game. Make someone makes someone. Man, I hope so. Yeah, that's a win. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. No Flash. problem. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters and thank you for those who've taken the time to go over to Apple, Spotify, and now YouTube. Leaving comments, ratings, and reviews in the appropriate places, that helps the podcast out. And I appreciate each and every one of them and I see each and every one of those. So thank you for taking the time. We'll see you next time.